0: Perhaps if you can turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 14, we can crack on. I want, to, uh, I want to talk to you this morning from a story that God's been talking to me a lot through uh, in recent, kind of, I guess, over the last couple of months. Um, and it's funny how you can think that a story is about one thing, and then when you really get into it, it turns out it's about something else completely. Um, and, that, and that's kind of been my experience of this, of this story in Matthew chapter 14. The story that we're going to talk about this morning is the story of Peter uh, walking on the water. Well, Jesus walks in the water first, um, but uh, then Peter gets the water, on the water, which is almost, I don't know if you can say more remarkable, but it's at least as remarkable uh, that Peter ends up, up, up out there on the water as well. And I guess when I when I first came to the story, or when I first felt God speaking to me about this story, um, it was just that kind of the kind of raw miraculous power. How could it be po- even? How could it be possible that a man like Peter, um, just a simple fisherman like Peter, could find himself walking uh, on top of a storm? Um, and, and I was kind of intrigued as to know how this kind of raw power could be, could be harnessed. And I think that often we can come to all stories of miracles with that kind of lens, like, wow, what an outbreak of power! Wow! And, and that is certainly in the story, certainly in the story. But what I really felt um, impressed in me the more I got into the story was actually what this story was really about is about connection, about the connection between Jesus and Peter, between heaven and earth, between Jesus and you, in fact. And actually, you, if you, you can actually see this story that way and actually all miracles, all the miracle stories in the Bible that way. They're actually, they are about the inbreaking of the raw power of God, but really what they are about are they're about the connection between heaven and earth, between Jesus and people just like you and me. And he comes into their life and he connects. And in that moment of connection, power is released that transforms people's lives. And really that's what we're, if I'm thinking about how do we get in behind, how does this happen? How can I do this? Really the answer that we're going to get to in the end is to do with this idea of connection. Okay, so that's where we're going. Okay, so let's have a look at this Um, Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to read from verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat, that said, uh, Jesus, and go before him to the other side. So, they're on one side of the lake, and he tells them to get in the boat and cross to the other. Well, he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening, had ca- evening came, he was there alone. But the boat with the disciples in it, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Wow. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, Ah, it's a ghost! And they cried out in fear, uh, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, "Take heart! It is I. Do not be afraid." I imagine he had to shout that. You know, you can imagine you got you got it. This is not like the kind of you know paintings that you've seen of Jesus. You know, in a dressing gown with long ginger hair. You know, just kind of strolling around on this mill pond. This is the middle in the teeth of a storm. Okay, this is kind of rain lashing his face, you know, shouting, do not be afraid, it is I <laughs> And Peter answered him, presumably in a similar manner. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said come. So Peter. Just think about this. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Wow. If you read that a few times, you just start to read over it. It's just so understated. You know, he got out of the boat and he walked on the water. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, "Lord, save me!" And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, "Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt?" And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God." Wow! What a story? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, that you are here and that you are reaching out to us always, but definitely in this moment, God, and Holy Spirit, move among us this morning, I pray, Lord, for a deeper connection with you for greater intimacy than ever before, for a greater revelation of who you are and what on earth it is that you have done to make this all possible. Lord, this is awesome. This is beyond our wildest dreams and beyond our capacity to understand. Lord, we want to acknowledge, I want to acknowledge right now how little I understand of how this all works. Thank you, Jesus, that you sent us the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Teach us this morning, Lord. God, I pray that everybody would leave here this morning more connected to you. Lord, with a deeper revelation of who they are in you and who you are and what you're all about. Lord, I pray that we would all leave here encouraged. God, that you are with us always. Thank you, Jesus. Come on. Amen. Okay, the first... Verse I want to kind of focus in on is verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Wow. Um, and what I want you to notice here is Jesus' commitment to the disciples and his commitment to you. Uh, we have to understand that for a first century Jew, the sea, particularly the swirling, tempestuous, you know, stormy seas represented something in their thinking. It wasn't just like a bad day. Oh, isn't the sea a bit choppy? You know, that's not what they were. It had a, a symbolic significance to Jewish people at this time because, you see, in the Old Testament, the sea, particularly the stormy sea, represented chaos of life apart from God. So, you see, in Genesis uh, chapter 1, at the, you know, the real start, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, in the Jewish mind, God brings order to this Chaos that exists before His creative force comes to it. We notice that um, when when the flood uh, in Noah's day came to the earth, what that was was it was an act of decreation. It was an act of um, it was it was the forces um, that mankind's decision. To walk away from God. The forces of chaos that had been unleashed on the world. Taking a physical form. So we decided to walk away from God. We decided to to live our lives apart from God. We decided to separate ourselves from the Father. And chaos was unleashed on the earth. And that finds a symbolic resonance in the flood of Noah. It's like God saying, okay... To live apart from me is to live in this chaotic situation that existed before I brought my creative order to it. We see this all the time, so in the, in the Old Testament. So when Daniel uh, sees a vision, he, he speaks of great winds of heaven churning up the seas. And out of these seas emerge four beasts. And the beasts are identified as nations who are opposed to God. Who have separated themselves from God. Who are working to a different agenda from God. Again, represented by these seas. We see in the Old Testament that demonic powers that are opposed to God. In Psalm 93 are also depicted as seas. Floods have lifted up, O Lord the floods have lifted up their voice. Floods lift up their roaring. Floods and water and swirling seas always represent the chaos of life, a life lived separated from God. It's amazing that when Jonah, if you know that book of the Bible, when Jonah um, decides to choose his own path, to reject walking with God and in harmony with God's plan for his life. It says that he sought to flee from God's presence. He sought to live outside of God's presence. And he ended up on a ship and this storm develops all around him. Why? Because this is how the Old Testament writers understood the chaos of life apart from God. It's interesting in that story that the, state, the sailors are so terrified because they are on this boat, you know, about to be wrecked in this storm. And Jonah eventually says to them, actually, this storm, this chaos that has been unleashed upon you is my doing. It's because I am trying to live apart from God. He says, so what you need to do is you need to throw me in to the midst of the storm and you'll find that it will be stilled because this is my doing. And indeed, that's what they do. But, always, the promise in the Old Testament is that God is greater than the chaos of separation that we have caused. In Psalm 89 we read, Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And in that, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, there is the promise that there will come one who will still the chaos that we have unleashed through our separation from the Father and will bring us back into connection, into ordered connection with him. So, it is in this context that we need to understand Jesus coming to the disciples, walking on the stormy sea. Think of these disciples alone, in the dark, fearful, surrounded by the storm, imagining that they might perish completely. And here comes Jesus, coming from the Father, reaching out to them, walking on the sea. Do not be afraid. It is I. This, this is the gospel. This is the gospel heart, that the Father's heart reaches out to us across the chaos and seeks to bring us back into that connection with Him. You see, Jesus is the better Jonah. We have run away from God's plan, and we have run away or sought to run away from His presence And we have unleashed a storm of chaos in this world. But God is the one who steps into that chaos, who is thrown into the teeth of the storm, our storm, in order to still it, in order to bring us peace. This is the heart of the gospel. By walking on the waves, Jesus is saying, listen, I am triumphing over the forces of chaos in your life. This is, a, pre, this is a, a foreshadowing of the obvious demonstration that happened through the resurrection where Jesus triumphs over everything that separates us from him, that separates you from him both now and in eternity. Sin, sickness, and even death. The ultimate separation Jesus walks on the storms. Jesus walks on the forces of separation in your life. Jesus triumphs over the very forces in your life, these chaotic things that would seek to separate you from him. Jesus comes to you walking on the storm. I don't know about your life, but there are certain things in my life that when, you know, certain kind of sore points, certain kind of broken spots, things that I feel God working through in my life. And sometimes it's like people step on them. You know, like landmines buried in my life. And they step on them and... It's like chaos. Internal chaos is unleashed in these moments. Listen, you know what I'm talking about? Jesus has triumphed over every force of chaos that is unleashed in your life by the things you have done and by the things that have been done to you. And he comes to you In these moments, in these moments, in the moment of chaos, in the moment when you are paddling as hard as you can against the storm, we're not getting anywhere. In fact, I think we might be going backwards. Keep paddling. He comes to you in these moments walking on these very forces that would bring chaos in your life. And he says to you, do not be afraid, it is I. That is the gospel. Every force that would separate us, he triumphed over. This is the true meaning of Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. For in him, Colossians 1 says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, out there on the storm, paddling with all your might and getting nowhere, He has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ, God the Father, thanks be to God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You know... why is this such a big deal? This is such a big deal because our sin causes us the separation. But actually, on a more profound level, our sin comes from the separation. The chaos that we unleash on the world is so often caused by our attempts to make something of ourselves apart from the Father, or to make our own way back to connection with the Father. and Jesus comes walking to us. The second verse I want you to focus on is verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. Ah! It's a ghost. I love that. I love that that was their first first thought. It's a ghost. What could that be out there? A ghost! You know, maybe they were, I mean, they were already scared, okay? And when you're already scared, your mind can do some crazy things. It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. I love it. The Bible is so unbelievably honest. You know, these are the absolute pillars of the church. These are our models of faith. Ah! It's a ghost! You know, they put their heads together. What could that be? Took a vote. Yeah, it's a ghost. But Jesus immediately spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I do not be afraid. You see, God coming to us to reconnect with us can be a very scary thing. There's a really tragic story A little glimpse of a a tragedy in the midst of an incredible outbreak of God's power and spirit in Exodus chapter 20, when Israel, having been freed from from, um, Egypt and journeyed through the Red Sea, finally arrive at Mount Sinai, where God gives them the Ten Commandments. And probably your image of what happened there is, you know, set in stone by Charlton Heston movies and things like that, that you may have seen over the years, for God's man is up the mountain, and the people are in the valley below going, well, we don't know what's going on up there, but it it looks pretty wild, let's just hang on until he comes back and tells us. Actually, if you read Exodus chapter 20, you realize that actually that wasn't quite God's intention for his people. It was more God's intention that all of Israel would encounter him, as Moses had done. The same mountain, by the way, where the burning where Moses encountered the burning bush. But this time, the whole of God's people would encounter God in that face-to-face way. And there's this terrible, really sad few verses at the end of chapter 20, where we read from verse 18, now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and this guy walking on the water, ah! The people were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood afar off, and they said to Moses, you speak to us. You speak, sorry, to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that the fear of him may be before you, and you may not sin. But the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Israel backed off in that moment and let Moses go ahead to represent them, though that was not God's intention. Israel backed up in in case they died. And in a sense, they were right. Something would have died in them. Just as something in Moses died when he met God at the burning bush. Just as something in me died when I encountered God for the first time 13 years ago, almost. You see, the key verse here is God has come to test you. Now, depending on your view of who God is, you will read that verse in different ways. Do you expect God's test to come in order to point out where you fail or in order for him to demonstrate to you that you can succeed in him? Do you see that's the crucial thing? when he comes to you, what's your feeling? What's your immediate reaction? Do you feel that this is, a, this is him? Yes, he is. He, he may be actually bringing about some, something might be dying in me in this moment. But I know, because I know his heart for me, that it is only dying so that I can be raised to a greater form of life. Moses understood that. He said, "Don't worry. This he's, he's come to test you, but only so that you will be, you won't sin, only so that you you'll have His heart." The people didn't understand that, and so they stood back. Do you know we can be a bit like that in the church? We can have leaders who we can think, wow, what a great relationship with God that guy's got. That's great because he's got that covered and I can get on with my life. And we can have have people around us that we know what great walk with God they've got, which is brilliant because, you know, he can do that stuff for me or she can do that stuff for me. We can hang on to this idea of having a priest who will go up the mountain for us, who will listen to God on our behalf, and then who will come and tell us what God has said. It's all over the church. Even churches who wouldn't necessarily think that that would be in their DNA. And we can have our relationship with God one step removed through somebody else. But God's intention for you is that you would go up the mountain. Is that you would recognize Jesus in the midst of the storm for yourself. And not think of him as a ghost and stay in the boat. You see, the Hebrews' most damaging sin was that they could not believe that God was good enough or loving enough to provide a means for them to be with him. It's the same problem that you see in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they started making clothes out of fig leaves. When God got to them, they discovered that he had provided clothes for them. God is flamboyantly good. He is so good that he has made a way that you can stand before him in his presence, surrounded by the smoke and the darkness and the lightning. And you can feel no fear. In spite of all our mess, he has made a place for us before the Father. He is so good. Do not let other people's walk with God become a fig leaf in your life. God wants us all up the mountain. Do you know, we see this in Peter's whole journey. I love it in in Luke chapter 5, where where Peter first encounters Jesus. And what happens is, Jesus is preaching from Peter's boat, um, because there's so many people who want to talk, who want to hear him teach. So they're all on the, on the beach and he's on the boat and he's preaching to them. And and Peter's just sitting there listening to this guy preach from his boat, thinking, wow, this is pretty awesome. And then, and then Jesus says, um, by the way, throw out your, uh, throw out your net and, and see what happens. And Peter says, look, I've been, you know, I've been fishing all night and I've caught hee-haw. <laughs> but... You seem like a good guy. Because you say it, I'll throw out my net again. And when he does that, he brings in almost a boat sinking, net breaking catch. It's fascinating that in that moment, Peter says this to Jesus Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I'll have someone else go up the mountain for me. Whoa, you've just done something wild. And in the the presence of this miracle, this something, this thing that's obviously from heaven, I'm suddenly aware. And that of my own sinfulness, and that awareness is making me want, and actually... You can imagine Peter at one end of the boat. I mean, a boat isn't that big. You know, he's getting as far away from Jesus as he possibly can, you know. But Jesus has got him. I love that. But somehow, in Peter's walk with Jesus, he becomes convinced that despite all his mess, He can stay. Actually, the safest place for him to be. Isn't that amazing? The revelation that Peter had, surrounded by wind and waves, he realizes he's safer out of the boat beside Jesus than he is inside the boat. Awesome. So you have this moment right at the end of John's gospel where almost the same thing happens. But Peter's reaction is very different. John chapter 21, Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. This is after Jesus has died, before they know he's resurrected. And he said to them, we'll go with you. And they went out and their, got into their boat, but, when they caught, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And he answered him, no. And he said to them, I think for Peter's benefit particularly. Cast your net out the other side. Almost the same thing he said to him three years before. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Look at Peter's reaction this time. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea wanting to get to the shore, wanting to get near to Jesus. Wow, that's what hanging out with Jesus for a few years will do to you. And remember, this is in the context of Peter failing Jesus spectacularly. But in the middle of that mess, somehow Peter had realized the safest place is up the mountain. The safest place is in the smoke and the lightning. The safest place is walking on the water in the midst of the storm because that's where Jesus is. But this story is even more amazing than that awesome though that is. Because if we read a wee bit ahead in Peter's story we find something even more remarkable. In Acts chapter 3 Peter's going to the temple and there's a beggar waiting at the gate. And the beggar's begging and saying, look, can you give me some some money. And it says this Peter directed his gaze at him and he said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting him to receive something. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. You see, awesome and amazing and miraculous and incredible and astonishing as the truth is that Jesus comes to us walking across our chaos to rescue us. The gospel is even greater than that. The idea is that we would not just be with him, but that we would be in him. The idea would not just be that we would be rescued, but that we would be raised up. We would not just be bailed out, but added in. We get to walk on the water too. So the third thing is verse 28. Lord, if it is you command me to come to you in the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. You see, it is not just the possibility of rescue, but of participation in God. The story before this one of Peter walking on the water is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And you can, it's amazing, you can almost see in the text the light going on for Peter in this moment. Jesus, we've got 5,000 people, we're in the middle of nowhere, send them away because they're going to get hungry. Jesus say, says to them, you feed them. <laughs> Did you remember to bring the food? no. Did you know that we had to bring the food? No. Jesus. Make them sit down. What have we got? What can we pull together? Few loaves, few fishes, feeds everyone. Jesus asking Peter and the disciples to do something that they know they can't do. But you see, Jesus was not expecting them to do it on their own. But somehow, from that day till the middle of that night, a light bulb goes on in Peter's head that says, I can do this. If he's asking me to do it, it must mean that it's possible for me to do it. If he's asking me to feed 5,000 people, it must be that I can do it in him. It must be that the resources in heaven are available for me to actually do this. connection with Jesus had made it possible and Jesus and Peter, sorry, realized this and said, don't you just love it that it, it is, it's Peter's idea that he walks in the water. You know, nobody else had that thought. I wonder what they thought when he said that. If it's you, Lord, tell me to come. <laughs> like, What? You know, they're always thinking, if it's you, Lord, come and join us. (laughs) But in somewhere, from hanging around with Jesus, somewhere in Peter's heart, there was this thought that actually, I can ask for stuff. I can have an idea. Do you know, he wouldn't have walked on water if he hadn't asked to walk on water. Because the reason we know that is because the other disciples didn't. But they all could have. Isn't that true in life? I know that it's very true for me. I think that sometimes we can count ourselves out instead of counting ourselves in. But the difference between people who walk on water and people who don't are that the ones that do ask if they can walk on water and then swing a leg over the boat. And that's pretty much it. Because every single thing that could have separated us from him has been wiped away. Peter understood this. He understood that there was a possibility of participation. And he also presumed upon Jesus' goodness, which is something God's really been speaking to me about. I wonder if you can turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be really quick about this. Verses 1 to 8 you almost never hear anybody preach on. And do you know why? Because Julian the Apostate in the 4th century used it as justification for saying that Jesus taught his followers to be liars and thieves. If you read it very superficially, that is exactly what it sounds like. Let's just read it very quickly. Sorry, Luke uh, Luke chapter 6, 16, I think it is. Hmm. Yes, it is. Luke Luke chapter 16, and it's verses 1 to 8. The parable of the dishonest manager. Just ask yourself, what, what what is Jesus trying to communicate to the people through this parable? And so he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And so we called him to him and he said, what's this I hear about you? Turn, the account of your managem- Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be the manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Basically, that means is I might be able to get another job. So summoning the master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, "How much do we owe my master, you owe my master?" He said, "A hundred measures of oil." And he said, th- he said to him, "Take your bill, sit down quickly and write down 50." He said to another, "How much do I owe you?" And he said, "A hundred measures of wheat." And he said to him, "Take your bill and write down 80." And the master this is a surprise, who he just ripped off, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. You almost never... Anybody heard anybody anybody ever preach on that? What a weird story that is. So let's just leave it there. Go away. (laughs) Defraud your bosses this week in the name of Jesus. (laughs) So what what then is Jesus saying? Listen, we can assume he's not saying that from the other things that he said. But what is he saying? Well, what happens here is that the master, who we know is a righteous and a good man, and a just and a fair man, and the reason we know that is because when the manager has been defrauding people, the community come and tell him because they know that this is not his way of doing business. And the master fires him on the spot, which is highly unusual in this culture. But he shows him amazing mercy. And the mercy that he shows him is this, that he will not sell him into slavery and his family into slavery because he's been defrauding him and he, needs, he should be paid back. Now, in this culture, if someone rips you off, that's what you do. So it's a surprise that the master does not sell to say, does not both fire the manager and sell him into slavery. The manager receives astonishing grace. And based on that mercy, the manager realized that his only way out of this is to presume a little more on that mercy. And so what he does is he says, actually, the only shot I've got of getting another job, because listen, if I'm fired for being dishonest, nobody's going to want to hire me. But what if I can show myself to the other bosses in the area to be shrewd and cunning and be able to save them money? What I'll do Is I'll get them to reduce what they owe to my previous boss. And I'll bank on my previous boss being okay with that. Because you see, at the end of the story, the manager's master, he could have said, he could have come out and said to the community, no, 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 I fired him the other day. This has been going on behind my back. But he says, you know what? I'm a generous man. I'll let him off. Jesus is trying to tell us who God is. He's trying to tell you who God is. God is a generous, good, benevolent father. You get mercy, and that is an invitation to presume for more mercy. You get grace, and that is an invitation to borrow a little bit more. Now, in this case, the manager sins and sins again and discovers that grace abounds. And Jesus is not commending that, but he is commending the attitude that says, We can push it. We can push this thing because we know the heart of the Father. You can push it. You can get yourself out on a limb. You can get yourself into a pickle out on a limb like Peter did. And you will find that Jesus will extend a hand to you immediately and lift you up. You can go for it. You have permission to take flamboyant risks because he is better than we imagine him to be. We think he's good. And in that moment when we're sinking, we realize he's better. And that is the story again and again and again and again. You have to think he's good to get out of the boat. But when you start sinking and you hear that hand, see that hand being extended you realize in the moment, hang on, he's even better. So get out of the boat, he's good, and he's even better. Amen. Now, is there anybody here who's facing an impossible situation in their life? Why don't you stand if you're facing an impossible situation in your life? Okay, now... Don't tell anybody what it is. They don't need to know. We don't want to squash the faith. (laughs) Just joking. (laughs) If you are around somebody, or in fact, even if you're not, go, go and stand beside somebody. Extend a hand to someone who is trying to walk on water. Extend a hand to someone who is trying to walk on water. And declare that God is even better than they imagine him to be. I'm not saying you don't know he's good, but it turns out he's even better. Just declare it over them. Don't pray for the thing to change. Don't ask them what it is. Just declare that he is better. He is even better than you imagine him to be. He is even better. He is even better. Father, we thank you that you are good and we declare over every situation that you will show yourself to be even better than we imagine. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have to take risks and get out of the boat knowing that we are safe The nearer we get to you, the safer we are, regardless of the wind and the waves that surround us. And even if we sink, you will be there to extend a hand to us. In the name of Jesus, amen.